Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper. Very good. Yes, Tamson and Dan. On uh, Wednesday, September 6, 2023, we are on location. Yes, we're on location. We're on the road. We're on the road. We're at Mohonk Mountain House. We've talked about Mohonk Mountain House, uh, which is, what would you? how would you describe it? It's sort of a... Uh, well, it's a grand old inn. Right. In uh, upstate, upstate New York. New York. New Paltz, okay. to be exact. It's a wonderful natural setting. And we'll come back to uh, a little bit about Mohonk a little bit later. But uh, we're on remote locations, so we're using our traveling equipment. We'll see if this actually works. Right? Right. Right. Okay. All right. But it's okay, been, so we had a great weekend. Yes. It was a family weekend. Labor Day weekend. Labor Day weekend. Yeah. And uh, we were celebrating belatedly Sadie's birthday. Right. And uh, Hazi showed up Hazi with showed his parents, with his parents, Granger and, and Nico, right? And uh, Bryce and Lorna flew in from South Carolina. Literally flew in, uh, as right. as they do, as one does, because Bryce has an airplane. A lot of good food, uh, and uh, Bryce is our go-to Mister Fixit. Well, that's for sure. And so we had a list for him. Yeah. And uh, he was looking at pumps. He was looking at the uh, electricity. He was repairing learning towers. We kept him busy. There's nothing Bryce can't fix. And it's, um, it's scary. Yeah, yeah, and extremely helpful. Oh yeah. So it was a good weekend. Yeah, we should have him uh, next weekend. Uh, we, yeah, <laughs> we could use him every weekend. Yeah. But uh, anyway, um, so. One of the articles I noticed because of Bryce, Bryce actually went to Worcester Polytech. He's an engineer. And uh, so, of course, uh, in the course of uh, visiting Bryce at Worcester, I've been to the Worcester Art Museum. And Worcester Art Museum was in the news this week in the New York Times uh, because uh, the um, one of their sculptures, a sculpture of the daughter of Marcus Aurelius was seized by the Department of uh, Antiques Trafficking. Really? Okay. Because uh, apparently uh, it, uh, it is now believed, even though the museum got this, has had this sculpture since 1966, mm -hmm. information has now come to light that it was actually uh, taken illegally from Turkey. Okay. And uh, so... But, but I guess people, should be returned. Well, the Worcester people, the Worcester people didn't take it from Turkey, so you know. No, but they bought it. Through, there was a certain level of trafficking of antiquities from Turkey through Manhattan. Yeah, actually, no, this look, is part of the Manhattan. I understand. It's yeah. a little bit of a buyer beware situation because I don't know where it's going to land and if uh, Worcester is going to lose it. But uh, they're going to be a big loser here if uh, they bought something in good faith as a holder in due course. And someone says, yeah, well, whether you knew it or you didn't, it turns out it was looted. So uh, you're uh, S out of luck. I mean, yeah. that, that, that's kind of a bad and result. And Worcester did say, you know, no one has asked for it back. No right. one has talked to us about this. And I'm sure they also said they had no but idea. we're glad to have this additional information. Yeah, well, that's nonsense. <laughs> they, were very, they were very nice. I'm that. sure they... Actually, they seized a um, museum, a um, sculpture of Marcus Aurelius himself. Yeah. 
from the Cleveland Art Museum well, those, a the, couple days those before. Those Cleveland guys, they're bad actors. People know that. The Cleveland guys have been looting from Turkey for a long time. Right? So, the, uh, And this is a charming little contemplative uh, sculpture, a bust, the head and the shoulders and bust were actually probably made by two different by different sculptors. I mean, that's not such a strange thing because, uh, you know, it, it wasn't um, unusual for sculptures to be partially finished except for the portrait details. Right. And then once somebody commissioned a particular portrait, boom. Well, it is. Look, what's odd to me is that these smaller museums are getting nailed for this and or at least they're losing some of their art or potentially they will be. Whereas, uh, of course, uh, the British Museum is still holding on to those uh, elegant marbles, right? Yeah, but they might have—they might be able to afford uh, fancier lawyers. <laughs> you know, something you laugh—that might be the difference. That might be the answer. They keep putting it off. You know, people say that should be returned, and, they, and the uh, British Museum keeps saying, "Oh, well, thinking about it." It's, it's a very interesting thought that yeah. uh, we might return. Talk this. about uh, institutions that have no money—small museums. Right. You know, they're thinking, yeah, they we want to go to court for it's, many it, years. It's all on this. Uh, lawyers. It's How lawyers, lawyers drive the economy, drive the arts, drive everything. That's that's the lesson we're learning here. So the other thing that popped out at the weekend—an unusual fact. Arises from well, the, well arises from the biggest upset, college football upset of the weekend, which of course was Colorado uh, defeating TCU. Colorado now coached by Dion Sanders, Neon right. Dion, right? Who was you know splashed himself all over the media and uh, made a big deal out of the fact that um, he and his previously unsuccessful Colorado team, for which he's the new coach, beat uh, TCU, a team that played for the national championship last year. So there's a small point about that and a much larger point. And the small point is that the way Dion did it, whether people realize it or not, is he went to the Colorado players that existed on the last place team and he said, you guys are to transfer. And he brought in 50 new players or close to it, which is crazy that you can do that. So he completely wiped out the old team. Close to it. And brought in his guys. Brought in his guys. Very uh, corporate. Yeah, from well, you know, uh, there are different people have different views as, as to including his own in. son, including his son who was at, J- at Jackson State, I think, uh, and brought him in with a lot of other players from that school too. So it's not like Dion is taking uh, the clay that was the Colorado football team that was previously unsuccessful and molding it into uh, a winning team. No, he just got a new team, uh, which is not easy. But uh, if you're famous like Dion, maybe you could do it. But here's what's much more interesting, Dion playing the role of the underdog and the inspirational leader uh, coming up with the surprising, unlikely victory, was photographed and perhaps gave an interview, pictured alongside one of Hazi's favorite books. Also, in, well, it's the favorite book of his father, uh, Granger, as well, That's for many right. years. And it was actually, the, you know, the... Uh, it, well, it's the little engine that could, right? You know, which is uh, you know well-known story, but uh, the version they held up, yeah, is was illustrated by Waddy Piper. Yeah, I mean that's the same. Uh, that's the one we have. Yeah, reprint. That, that's the famous uh, version. Hazi has the one that Hazi calls the train book. Hazi even has a version in Spanish. Hazi yeah. can't get enough of this book. Right. So uh, Dion, let me just say, and, and people will remember this twenty years from now. If Dion's looking for a left-hand quarterback 15, 20 years from now, we got just the guy. He's, <laughs> he's reading up for that part. 
Hazi's uh, warming up, Hazy warming boy. up in the wings. Hazi boy, left-hander. So that's something to look forward to. I don't know. Hazi has kind of a strong personality. I don't know. Hazi and Dion will get along? Yeah. If he throws touchdown passes, they'll get along. So uh, another traditional part of our Labor Day weekend is that you and Sadie. You remember Sadie. Dan yes. and Sadie. Dan and Sadie. Go to the U.S. Open. So the U.S. Open is quite. I don't go. Quite the gala. Well, we can't afford to send three people. I mean, it's right. a very expensive right. event. Stay home, make the chicken meatballs for us. Yeah, it's good. So uh, it was a hot day. It's been a hot weekend, and it's still hot. The U.S. Open, people talk about that as they should because it's tough for the players. But Sadie and I had a very interesting day at the U.S. Open. It's tough to get to, and uh, the conditions can be tough even for a spectator. But uh, we saw a great match. Um Involving Ben Shelton, who who was a big underdog, and he came out and he uh, beat the number eleven player in the world, a fellow named Paul's his last name, and uh, it was a shocking upset. But we're watching this guy Ben Shelton saying this guy's fantastic. Well, and, you mentioned him. I I never heard of him, mm-hmm. but you mentioned we were watching this guy who was doing serves. Yeah. Where the ball's going 140 miles an hour. 149 miles an hour. We're at the tournament watching it, and they actually have a, a an electronic sign that, that provides you the information as to the miles per hour of the serves. And usually, in the, in the men's tournament, you have an accomplished player that gets to 120, and sometimes even 130. Mm-hmm. And this guy suddenly serves 141, and the crowd notices, and they start mm-hmm. chanting or something, and then he serves 149. And the crowd's going crazy, and he serves 149 again. Well, uh, I assumed it was like a party trick. Like, this is the one thing he can do, and he probably wouldn't go very far. Well, he's 20 years old, and I think his reputation was that was the deal. But apparently, he's got a much more complete game. He looked great when we saw him. And last night, uh, he beat uh, Francis Tiafo, uh, which was a huge upset. And now he's in the semifinals as a 20-year-old. 20, uh, which means he gets to play Djokovic on Friday. And by the time this comes out, that match will be over. And it will be shocking beyond belief if Shelton beats Djokovic. Although on the, I will say this. One of the things that makes it shocking potentially is that Shelton is only 20 years old. But the fellow who, who won the tournament last year, Alcaraz, uh, and beat Djokovic in doing so, is also 20 years old. It can be done. So uh, we shall see. Anyway, it was uh, quite uh, fascinating. But one person who didn't see the U.S. Open is... My uh, mom. Is your mom. Vivian Granger. One Vivian Granger. arms. Poor woman in her late 90s goes to tune in the U.S. Open tennis. Their cable provider is Spectrum. Charter Spectrum. Yes. And uh, they're shut out. They are shut out. So explain why uh, Viv and... uh, Okay. Couldn't see. It, every, we're, by now, people are familiar with the notion that sometimes there's a dispute between a cable provider and a programmer. Uh, and this would happen every few years with the Yankees. and They'd have a dispute with Cablevision, and the Yankee fans would tune in Cablevision, and there'd be no Yankee game because the contract between Cablevision and the Yankees had lapsed. Uh, and it got negotiated ultimately after a few weeks of uh, you know, a dark screen. So this happens every once in a while. But uh, is that what's happening with respect to uh, Charter and uh, ESPN, who's carrying the tennis? And the answer is it's not what's happening. It's something completely different and much more significant for the future of television, and that is this. Charter uh, had no problem 
coming to agreement with ESPN as to what it would pay for the for ESPN programming, uh, the programming that would give you the tennis tournament. That was not the issue. But Charter said to ESPN, or more to the point, to Disney, which owns ESPN, we have a beef, and that is this. We carry the Disney, Disney Channel and pay for it. But at the same time, apart from Disney providing us that Disney Channel, Disney is in the streaming business, and it's streaming a different Disney Channel, an ad-supported Disney Channel, which has more interesting programming than the channel that you, Disney, are providing to us Charter. So in a sense, we're buying something that has less value because Disney continues to compete with us in another medium, namely streaming. Uh, we want to have access to that streaming content too. And provided right? to and provided our to our cable subscribers. Yeah. Okay. Now this is a fundamental issue because a lot of the uh, content providers, in this case Disney, are playing both sides in the street. They're so well, Disney says we have put a lot of money into developing this streaming. I understand. We don't want to just give it away. I understand. But they have two businesses which are sort of competing and competing in a way which undermines the value of what they're providing to the cable company, to Charter. So you can understand why Charter's ticked off. They're saying, you're giving us something that is much less appealing to our subscribers because they're looking at your streaming thing and they're not getting it. So, you know, you're cutting us off at the knees. And Disney says, look, uh, as you just said, too bad. We've invested a lot of money in the streaming. It's a separate business. Uh, and uh, so Charter said, you know something? If that's your attitude, we're not carrying anything of yours, including ESPN, which has the tennis. And that's the impasse. And there's no obvious solution to that. Mm. So uh, I don't know how to say this to your mom. Perhaps you will. Uh, <laughs> she's not seeing the tennis. Uh, they're not resolving this anytime soon. Are there sneaky ways she could be watching the tennis? Yes, but I'm not, we're not going to talk. Yeah, there's okay. probably a way for her to scream it or something. Like, let me put it this way. There's but no way she can do it. She somebody can. under 25 to uh, be able to... She needs someone under 97 to, okay. to help her do it. But, uh, but that's another subject. But yeah, there's probably a way. So one of the things we love about coming to uh, Mohawk is, you know, the nature, the hiking, yeah. and so on and so forth. But it's the swimming Okay, mm-hmm. and right now we're we're here because it's the end of the swimming season in the lake. Right, and the lake is a marvelous swim. Right, so you know uh, we make a point of trying to do it yes, at least but, once a year. But the other great swim at Mohonk, they have an unbelievably beautiful and functional indoor pool that they put in. Uh, just a few years ago okay and uh, so it's you know it's ever since uh, they built it, it's been one of my favorite indoor pools and, and I have some favorite indoor pools around the world and it turns out Paris has quite a fabulous collection of pools some of them really date back and there's a wonderful article in the New York Times uh, talking about Parisian indoor pools and the history of Parisian indoor pools, which goes, you know, back into like the 19th century or, or something like that. And when the pools were first built, there was no thought of, you know, um, vigorous exercise, lap swimming, so much as uh, trying to recreate the, uh, apparently, recreate the feeling of being swimming in 
you know, more natural circumstances, like a, a river for it. And mm-hmm. so some of the pools were built actually to, they were long and thin mm-hmm. and sometimes even had like rocks and things in them to mimic uh, the, um, you know, natural swimming. And it wasn't until um, this article says that, the you know, like the time of the Cold War and, uh, you know, competition between nations ramping up in the Olympics, etc., that uh, a more, you know, conventional, competitive uh, style of pool was being built. So anyway, th- uh, this article that you showed me, and uh, it's a wonderful article, and it's written by a woman, Catherine Porter, who uh, swims for exercise, and she is uh, living in Paris at the moment, and she's experiencing these fabulous old Art Deco pools, the vaulted ceilings. But one thing she finds odd, a little bit odd, is, you know, some of the the culture of swimming in Paris and the culture of the locker room. The locker rooms are co-ed. The showers are co-ed. Now, people keep their bathing suits on, and yet, uh, you know, there's some vigorous scrubbing and rinsing that goes on. that she finds a little bit disconcerting. She describes uh, the male swimmers sort of uh, making sure they're thoroughly clean. Yes, in all regions. Right. Uh, But anyway, so that she's getting used to, I think. Um, But also the swimming itself. You know, theoretically, people are supposed to divide themselves into fast lanes, medium lanes, slow lanes. She said she's never seen that yet. You'll have in the same lane one swimmer, you know, charging back and forth, mm. you know, uh, uh, pushing buttons on their watch, uh, you know, d- doing their times. Somebody else will do a, a steady sort of breaststroke. And there's a third kind she calls the sensualist, who may do a few strokes, dive to the bottom of the pool, float around a bit. And uh, apparently it's all acceptable behavior. And she believes comes from that tradition of the you know the indoor pool as you know a just a a natural phenomenon where mm-hmm. you should be at one uh, with nature. She has not been, I think, to any of the more modern conventional pools. She really sticks to the um, kind of fabulous older pools with these wonderful vaults over them, etc. But uh, it sounds a little daunting. Swimming in Paris, mm-hmm. but uh, it may be a fabulous experience. A, a lot about Paris is a little daunting, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, look, it's a different type of swimming. How about that? And, and if you go in there with the attitude that you're doing your twenty laps, you can, it sounds like it's not going to work out. But uh, you can see that you could uh, get into a different mode. And uh, appreciate the experience. Well, just like we get something different out of swimming in the lake. Yeah, here. Than, than swimming you know, indoors, swimming laps indoors. That's, that's for Counting sure. the laps that we yeah. do. Yeah, so the Mohawk thing kind of resonates there. It does. So, uh, yeah, we enjoy swimming in the lake today. Well, the way you can, the reason we can do it is because it's, we're in this heat wave. 
And normally, yeah, there's this crazy heat wave that is even hitting uh, upstate New York, where right. it's 90 in the 90s during the day. Otherwise, so, you know, we, in previous years when we come this time, we're, we swim, we're determined, but we really have to brace ourselves. Right, we really have and to, we are the only people in the lake. Now we're, we're going to the lake and we're seeing a whole Only bunch the of hardy individuals get in the lake right. uh, after Labor Day, but uh, not this year. This time it's a piece of cake, and you know, and I w- could explain why it's such. There's I for, I forget all the geological information about why the lake water here is different but it is it's a high mineral content or something no they, they, yeah Limestone. I, I, I forget i should know by now but, i've been hearing the speech for you know yeah. 30 years but uh it, it's something about ph levels uh, okay. you know blah, blah, blah. all right so then we were going to talk about uh, another article bonnie prince charlie Yes, Bonnie Prince Charlie. Which... Well, you know, we've just been to Scotland. Oh, that's true. So we're steeped. But also, we've watched quite a bit of Outlander. Even though we're, you know, we keep watching Outlander. It's one of those things, it just, even though we're not obsessed with it, it's just like, I don't know, it's like family. You know, you go in, you check out. You, you check out. Well, there's another season. Check we it out once we in a while. Much. We I know. Relax. I don't know where they can it. go at this point. Yeah. They, they seem to be repeating themselves just a tad. But anyway, um, so th- that's probably the only reason we've heard of Bonnie Prince Charlie. And, For sure. Um, yeah. You know, and, and of course we talked about the um, his rescue by Flora McDonald right. a few months ago, etc. So, you know... All, many Americans have been enlightened about uh, mm. Scottish and English history uh, to this extent. Um, but uh, so partly because of this interest in uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie, mm-hmm. uh, there's an effort going on at the, I think, what was it, the University of Dundee in Scotland um, to kind of zero in on exactly what he looked like. Now, Bonnie Prince Charlie. He's supposed to be very good looking. However, Barbara Vesela, um, a um, graduate student in forensic uh, art, mm-hmm. forensic art, the study of forensic art and facial imaging, has been working with uh, modern methods using like um, uh, ancient methods like death masks his death masks and uh, you know but also kind of way and to, photography and but there's technology that allows you to take an image of an older person and sort of try to reverse the years and how that person looked when they were younger and since she has more images of him as an older person she's able to sort of get some clues as to what he must have looked like as a younger person and she's also drawn on paintings that may have been contemporaneous some credible some not so she's really drawing from all sorts of sources Right, and she's come up with this composite, uh, which is not too cute. Uh, yeah, it's not so bad. But well, I mean, that's the thing that really strikes you is that he was really known for being attractive. Right, I don't know. And that apparently, he's had great charisma. Yeah, and one of the things that underscores, and uh, Barbara Vesela, who's doing this, says clearly we. You know, we we probably have different standards. No kidding. Than they did in the 18th right. century. So had, right. For what is a good-looking they guy? They make a big fuss in the article yeah. that he had yeah. some acne or something like that. Which, yeah. Uh, it was. This strikes me as not disqualifying. But uh, the New York Times was upset about it, and uh, he. Uh, and it's also interesting. Why would you describe what she made? It's not a bust. It's sort of a, a colored. Uh, you know. A, you know a, 
a color bust, a color actual portrait. It's not a painting, right? No, it's, it's like a three-dimensional a life, like the picture, three-dimensional depiction of what his head would have been like. Yeah, I um, lost it. I don't know where. It yeah, well, oh, the, yeah, you can't describe somewhere. it anyway. Yeah. But uh, you know, it. So uh, you know, and and anyway, the point is, he was he's reasonably good looking, but he's not fantastic looking. And uh, by our standards, by our standards, again, it's a, it's such a subjective thing. You know? Well, look, I mean, I would like to. Uh, you know, talk to the people from uh, the seventeen fifties uh, and say, you know, um, and show them who our contemporary right. high standards of beauty right. are, and and see if they would say, oh my God, you know, who yeah. wants that? Look, at the end of the day, it doesn't make much difference what he looked like, but uh, and and this comes full circle. They say part of the interest of this is is arises from the Outlander series. I mean, more people have learned about this figure, and there's more discussion about how charismatic he was, right. uh, and how he escaped, and whatever. And, and then, then it comes to some graduate student to say, "Okay, let's see what he really looked like." So to, anyway, it, it, it's it's interesting, but um, you know, Outlander uh, is always there. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, Bryce and Lorna are going to Scotland also. Right. And Lorna is a big Outlander fan. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I wonder if that inspired the trip to some extent. Ah, maybe, 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 uh, maybe. I should ask. I wonder. I, I don't see Bryce as a big Outlander fan, but I'd have to ask him. No, uh, <laughs> no. I don't know. Okay, so you had. We're getting near the end here, and you had. Uh, we had some. Food yeah, there's a silly little article in the New York, and not the New York Times, the uh, Wall Street Journal, about um, adults craving crustables. So crustable. Is, do you know what that is? It's a product no, made by Smuckers. Uh-huh. Frozen peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And they're round. Okay, they're cut in a circle. And they're I think they're crustless. Okay. And so we first were introduced to them. The, I took the kids to the grounds for sculpture, had a little cafe. Yeah. And uh, so we went to the little cafe for lunch. And they had peanut butter and jelly yeah. on the menu. So, of course, you know, three out of three of the kids ordered peanut butter three, and jelly. Three out of three. Yeah. And uh, it took a long time for it to come. A yeah. long time. Yeah. Okay? All, all the other things were ready, but the sandwiches weren't there yet. Yeah. And when they got to us, they were these round peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And we had no idea. We thought these people had, like, cut out these sandwiches, made these very special gourmet peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. What The reason they probably took a long time is somebody had to run to the store, uh, to the shop right, and buy some in the freezer so, and bring them back. So they have no crust on them? Is that the deal? Right. Okay. They're just, they're, and, but they're frozen. Exactly. And they're frozen. Yeah. So anyway, and so there was this article in the uh, Wall Street Journal of various people. Apparently, there are even celebrities, football players who like them, etc. And uh, there's a discussion. How do you eat them? Do you eat them frozen, slightly frozen, thawed? What's the best way? Do you put them in the microwave, yeah. uh, etc. So there's all kinds of discussions. But uh, I really had no idea. Um, and I just, uh, it wasn't until, you know, after we had this uh, um, lovely lunch, and this was, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago, um, at least, uh, yeah, at, the ca- at the cafe. I and then I saw them in the grocery store and I said, 
wow, I can't believe we paid hey, hey. for those. $10 a sandwich, um, But I had no idea it was a thing with the normal people. Well, the, the same journal, just a few pages uh, beyond that article, had an article called Boozy Beverages Blur Lines for Kid Adult Drinks. And apparently some well-known kids' brands have developed products that are incorporate alcoholic beverages because they say, listen, the people who have been buying these products all the time have been parents. They're highly aware of these brands. And let's have a product for them. We've been marketing to them. Well, is it that or is it uh, kids? Uh, these are things that people as kids loved and they grew up and they still have these, uh, you know, kid-like taste buds. It could be. But the one, I won't go over all the products, there are just a few of them, but the one that really caught my eye is something called Ego Brunch in a Jar. And uh, here's how they describe it. It's, it's a liqueur. Uh, it's an Ego liqueur that tastes like maple, maple syrup, butter, and bacon. And it's a collaboration of Kellogg, Kellogg's and Sugarland's Distilling. It is packaged in a glass jar with an image of a waffle. How's that? And here's how they explain it. Uh, Kellogg and the distiller created the drink, quote, so parents can let go, relax, and enjoy that treat-yourself-feeling brunch evokes. Well, I can just see a cocktail that could be made out of that. Yeah. Because, you know, like, um, for a hangover remedy is raw egg. Mm -hmm. Um, So, ego, egg. You know, and you could, uh, like, uh, whip in a raw egg or something, hey. and, uh, you know. All right. It's another sign the apocalypse is upon us. The, uh, as they like to, you know, the tagline is going to be, uh, let go of my ego uh, cocktail, or my ego liqueur. Well, on, on that inspirational note, um, we should close. Well, I was going to say because also. Because we, we've got to run to dinner, actually. It's also going to say about the crustables. You remember Smucker's slogan. Smucker's slogan. Uh, with a name like Smucker's, it has to be good. And People seem to love them. All right. <laughs> okay. So uh, let's walk. You take I, your kids to the grounds for sculpture. You take them out for a meal. You think you're bringing them culture. culture and, then, and you really and just you get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that was in the freezer. Uh, okay. So until next time, uh, when we'll give you a full report on the Mohawk uh, trip. Uh, This is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. See us.